Hi everyone, I'm Addie Price, your host. I'm Miss Oklahoma 2019. I'm a speaker, performer, and advocate, and I'm also a proud dog mom of Finley. She's a 70-pound golden doodle. On today's episode, we are talking with Jill Donovan, CEO of Rustic Cuff, which she founded Regifting Gone Wrong. Rustic Cuff has the most fabulous bracelets and cuffs. She is also a published author and has her own podcast, CEO-ish. Please welcome Jill Donovan. Hello, Jill. Hi, Miss Addie. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being on today. I'm so, so excited to have you. You're always so fun and such a light to everybody that you, that you meet. Well, thank you. I'm just returning the favor because you were one of my first guests on my podcast. And the truth is I would have you as my regular co-host if you lived here. You were that good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are, um, I think we made a pretty good pair on that one. That was a funny one for sure. So it was very funny. Yes. The stuff and even the stuff that we, that got aired got funny as what well, was funny as well. Not just the stuff we edited. Right. Yeah. The stuff that had to be edited out. That's always a good yeah. idea. Yes. Exactly. Well, Jill, so you came and you spoke to the class of Miss Oklahoma 2019 this past summer and you were sharing a little bit about your Oprah story. And I know that this is a story you probably never get tired of telling, but it's so, so great. And I really would love for you to share that story with us. Okay. Um, I'll do the shortened version, the shortened version for you. Um, you know, I, and you've heard this part before, but since I was a little girl, I wanted to find that thing that I could say I get to do instead of have to do. Because all the adults I'd ever known always said, I have to go to work. I have to do that. And I thought, wow, is that all there is to life? I want to find my get to. Like I knew from the time I was very young that I was looking for a get to. And so I decided after having my dreams dashed of being an Olympic gymnast that I would try a new hobby every single year from the time I was 10 until I landed on that thing that I wanted to stay on instead of moving to uh, the next hobby the next year. And, and I literally did it for, I mean, I still do it to this day. So if I tell you how many years I've done it, that will tell you how old I am. Um, but I'm still in my 40s, so I can tell you that. Uh, but I did it every year and it ranged from, um, I did a beauty pageant one year and in Florida, which you, I think you might, you, you might not know this, but one of my hobbies one year was sewing uh, I took a sewing class for a whole year. And because I had done that, my mom thought that I should sew my dress and make it for the uh, Miss Florida, Teen Florida pageant. Oh, my. It was the worst, ugliest dress, not just at any pageant, but just ever. And it took me a while to get over that. Uh, yeah. So then and things from, you name it, this, any sport, I tried it, any language, just, but I never... I never found something that I said, yes, this is my calling. This is my purpose. I found a lot of things I loved to do, but not things that I felt called to do for, for life or for a profession or um, for that, that particular uh, thing that just made me want to stick on it. And one of the hobbies one year was going, getting, going to the Oprah show, which really needed a full year because it, it was tricky to get, even get tickets to the show and my one year of trying, like literally almost every day, turned into a four-year hobby of trying to get tickets just to be in the audience for the Oprah show. And that finally, after four years, I thought, uh, okay, I've got to figure out 
another way because this is not working. And I found out they were looking for people to be on the show. And uh, they were looking for me, I felt like. I didn't know what they were looking for, but I just felt like they might be looking for me. And uh, I, the first thing I saw that they were looking for on their list of things that you could be on the show for was regifting. And I grew up in a home. Do you regift, Addy? Uh, I regift often, but I, I'm okay. not proud of it, but I do. Ah, <laughs> I think you should be proud of it. So I was proud of it because I thought it was just this fun thing. And my whole closet was full of gifts that I got for my birthday for years and years and Christmas that I didn't want or that I didn't need. And I made this amazing closet that my mom used to have that I swore I would never have one, but I did just like my mom's. And it was actually better than my mom's. And so now Oprah was looking for people who were regifters and who had some stories to tell about it. Well, I had some really funny stories that had just happened. And I wrote, I, Oprah, at the time I was an attorney. That was one of my hobbies as well. That turned out, uh, that turned out to be a longer hobby. Uh, but <clears throat> I was sitting there at my firm and I, I wrote these funny stories and just hit send and said, okay, we'll see what happens from that. And within two hours, the Oprah show called me and said, we loved your email. We want to fly to Tulsa and film your gift closet. And all of a sudden, I just had this excitement inside of me, like, this is going to be it. I don't know what it's it, but I know this is almost, it's a few steps closer to my get to, because mm -hmm. being an attorney was not my get to. It was definitely a have to. And then they flew to Tulsa, filmed the gift closet. It was funny. It was a show about etiquette, and it was going to air in a few days. And they said, they called me and said, we loved uh, we loved the, the film that our producers came and filmed in your house in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And will you, we want to fly you up to the show tomorrow to sit in the front row. And I just knew that my life was going to change. I didn't know how, but I knew it was. And I had the most, uh, you know, when you're anticipating something that's so big and you don't know what it is, it's just this, it's like you're, you're walking on this cloud and you're not sure where it's going to go, but you know, that's where you're supposed to be. That's what this, that's what this felt like. And so I went to the, flew to the show, sat in the front row and I wasn't supposed to say anything. I just was going to say thank you to Oprah when she thanked me for being there. They were going to just air the clip. And instead of doing that right before the show started, they said, Jill, we want you up on the stage with Oprah on the couch. And that's when I was ready to put in my resignation as an attorney to do something that I didn't, I just knew was, was going to be my purpose. And I wasn't sure yet, but I, I sat on the couch with Oprah and she looked at me and smiled and said, I love your shoes. And it was like we were really close friends at that moment. And the, the, the clip aired and then she looked at me and it was funny and it was supposed to be this lighthearted thing. And they told me I was to tell my three funny stories. And Oprah looked at me and she said, well, Jill, what do you think about what you just saw? You're exposed to the world. Everybody knows you regift now. And then I thought that's my perfect way to segue into these funny stories. And it was this lighthearted show. And then she said, but before you, before you talk, let's go to the etiquette experts we have on the show. And she introduced them. And then in one fell swoop, my walking on the clouds feeling and my uh, mountaintop experience that I was having didn't just land to the ground. It went to a very, very low valley because these two girls from Canada the etiquette experts they had on there looked at me and said, and then they looked at Oprah and smiled and they said, we think what Jill's doing is wrong, Oprah. And we think that she's rude and that's, it's all tacky. And that whole closet she has 
it needs to go to goodwill. And it was so, it's hard to describe the feeling because it, it was embarrassing just what was happening, but it was really more than just the embarrassment because I can handle embarrassment. It was the loss of a hope that I had had for many years, not to, not to work for Oprah. It was just the loss of a hope of something greater than I was already doing. It was just the loss of what that, um, get to what that get to thing was. And, and in 15 minutes of that, it was all over. And then the show went on and went, talked about other subjects and they came up to me afterwards and said, we'll call you when it airs. And I begged them not to air it because I didn't see that coming, just the embarrassment of it. And I left and, and they, they said, we'll call you. And I remember leaving this studio and I was at lunch with my husband and I said, in tears, just, I just said, Terry, I really don't know why God would have taken me to this high, high mountain just to be gone, just to go to a valley within like two days, all within 48 hours. I said, but I have a very strong feeling that someday it's going to have a great significance in my life. And, and that was it. Then I went back to a cloud of just fog and disappointment and went home and I emptied the entire gift closet and said, I will never open this closet again. I want to remain empty and I'm never going to do another hobby because if doing hobbies got me to this mountaintop experience within, you know, 15 minutes, I was just humiliated in front of 20 million people and no fault of Oprah. It just is how it, how it worked out. Then I don't want to do anything like this anymore. And so for five years I did, I, I raised my daughters, which is doing a lot. Uh, but I raised my daughters and did no hobbies, didn't even dream. I stopped dreaming for five years. And then, um, and then I woke up five years later and I said, I, I, I can't not dream anymore. I can't not live to my fullest anymore. And I just said out loud, I forgive, I forgive these girls, Canada, I forgive Canada for, um, for, for ruining what I thought was going to be my get to. And when I said I forgive them, it was like it just all just left me all this this uh, despair and everything I had been feeling for five years left me and I opened the closet for the first time in five years I opened that closet and looked at those empty shelves and I said God would you give me an idea to fill these shelves back up and um, lo and behold that thing that idea was cuffs cuff bracelets that I had become a collector of just in my travels and I taught myself that night I got up at two o'clock in the morning and I got on the computer and for months and months and months, I would sit down at that computer and learn how to uh, engrave and dye leather and do everything. I wanted it all to be inspirational because I wanted to just give them to people who were going through hard times. And I started, didn't tell anybody, but I just started to fill that closet back up until it started overflowing with cuffs. And, um, and that's how Rustic Cuff was, was birthed. That was the birth of Rustic Cuff. So you kind of mentioned a little bit about how you wanted to give those cuffs back to people. You wanted to yeah, kind of give those back to people who were going through hard times and who maybe were kind of in their valley. So I know you do a lot to give back to the, to the community and give back to people who are around you. And what does that stem from? What, you know, what is the reasoning behind that? Why do you feel like you need to give back or want to give back? It's a great question. You know, it really started, I think I grew up in a home where my mom and dad just had enough, but they always gave like, like never, they didn't, they gave so unselfishly that it was just never a question of whether we, you would have enough to give. They just did it without thinking. And so it was sort of, it was sort of innate, but 
when this happened to me and I shut down, when that closet started overflowing, I said, okay, I'm just going to start giving these away and just not for the purpose of marketing. And this is where it was birthed, really birthed from. Um, I went into the closet and put a few on my left arm and I said, okay, I'm going to just find people, strangers, and start giving these away. And they had words on them of hope one day at a time and things like that. And I went, I felt compelled to go to the grocery store. And when I did, I walked in, there were many, many people there that day, but I saw one lady that just stood out and she was at the cash register. And I felt very compelled to get in her line, which was a long line. And when I got up to the front of the line, there were still five people behind me. And I said, ma'am, I just feel like I'm supposed to give this to you. And I wasn't saying rustic cuff. I wasn't, it wasn't about marketing. I just didn't even look down at my wrist. I just felt down there and I took one off and gave it to her. And uh, she started to cry right there immediately, which was awkward for me because I didn't know why she was. And everybody was staring at me, staring at her. And she said, um, you wouldn't know this because I've, I don't know you, but um, this is amazing because yesterday I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And when I was in the doctor's office after I got my uh, diagnosis, I prayed and said, God, would you give me a sign of hope that everything is going to be okay? And then when I looked down at her wrist, the one I gave her was a pink one. And she just, through her tears, looked at me and said, thank you so much for being that sign of hope. And so I, I got in my car and I said, okay, this is my get to. Mm -hmm. And this is what I want to do every day for the rest of my life. In some form or fashion, I want to give to people I don't know when I feel compelled to, when my knower says that's the person. And every single day, that is what uh, I, I've done since then. But not just, not because I feel like I have to, but really because, because of what it, what it does back for selfishly it it what it does for me it just keeps growing and growing um this joy that i have and then other people catch on to that and it becomes this ripple effect that you can't believe stems from a painful experience of two girls that i that i thought at the time were thwarting my dream but i realized they were part of building my dream of landing in the center of this get to mm -hmm. Well, so now that Rustic Cuff has taken such a, or has reached such a wide audience, I know that so many people are just enamored really by what you do, your story and the cuffs that you make. Now that it's so large and your business has taken off so much, what drives you to keep going? What is that motivational factor for you? <laughs> well, that, that's a great question. When you, there are a couple of things. Um, when you do land in the center of your get to, you don't ever feel like you're getting up to go to work. You, you can't believe that you actually get to do that. But on days, if I don't feel like doing that, just for whatever reason, if I don't feel well and there, you know, when you are, you have 120 employees, there are moments that, that you don't, you, you don't always want to go in and sometimes you just like to have a little space. But what keeps me going are, are the people, the 120 people that work here, that are my family, and to know that the effect of what they do every day is so widespread that I, I, I don't want to stop that. Mm -hmm. I really don't. Yeah. I think it is that finding something that you love to do. I know my parents 
from the time that I was so, so little, they always said, if you are doing what you love, then you'll never work a day in your life and you will actually yes. get forward to going to work every day. And that's still continuously what I hope for and what I search for. And luckily I feel like by being with Oklahoma, you get that opportunity to love yes. every single day so much. But I, th- I always think about what am I going to do after this year and how will that year look? And I always want it to be that I get to do this instead of yes. I have to do this. Um, You're a great, you are a great example of that, Addie, though, because you love what you do so much that it doesn't ever seem like you're trying to do that. And when I saw the picture of you dressed up for trick or treat, mm-hmm. you, were you nine years old? Yeah, I was eight years old in that picture. Eight years old, and you were yes. dressed up like Miss Oklahoma. I can, and then, and then I saw a picture of you as Miss Oklahoma years later. You, that there's no better example of somebody who dreams big and who just does what she does with excellence. But it is extremely obvious that you love that you love what you do. It is not it is not a have to at all. Well, thank you, thank you. I don't feel like it's a have to at all either. It is definitely yeah. one of the biggest blessings that I've been given in my in my life. Yeah. Uh, so this podcast really centers around talking about living visible and really taking what your struggles are and letting them be known and talking about them and not being scared to almost not use your voice in a sense, but letting that be something that the world can see has actually helped you. So Mm -hmm. what do you feel like holds you back or what do you feel like had held you back for so long from finding that get to, or from being where you are now? You know, when I look back at all those years of hobbies and all the things that I thought were my have to's, I, it's a great epiphany when you realize that your have-tos in the end were not have-tos. They were just preparation for your get-tos. Oh my gosh, I wish that I would have written that down. I liked that quote so much. Thank well, you. will be able to listen to <laughs> <laughs> I've never said that and I actually liked it. Um, but, but they, all of those things that you thought, oh my gosh, I played the harmonica for a full year. What in the world that, what did that have to do with like what I do now and what my, my get to is now and every single hobby, I could write every single one of them down and the way that they play into, and I know that you know this as well for your own life, the way they play into my get to, they were just pieces of preparation that without them, they, without, and you'd be missing some dots in a big connect the dot picture mm-hmm. and I am so grateful, even for the hard times. And I used to think that sharing the hard times uh, was embarrassing because people only wanted to hear, in my mind, success stories. And when you're at the mountain top, like they want to hear that story. And when I started speaking, what I realized, and you can tell when you're speaking somewhat, what, what moves an audience, what moves the most is when you share your valley and what the fruits that you learned uh, or that you, that you gathered in the valley and people, people just the way that that resonates instead of somebody standing up there telling about all the amazing things, you know, that they have done in their life and their lifetime achievements. People don't care about that. I mean, the person speaking sometimes thinks people care about that, but people don't care about that. They just want to hear the things that have gone wrong and how you handled it and how you turned it into something or how you allowed God to turn it into something uh, to prepare you for what you're doing now. So I used to not speak about things that I didn't want people to know. And then I realized what an amazing connection that has become when you tell about your valleys. 
Yes. Yeah. I think that the, the biggest thing that I feel like I've learned is that every single time that I share my story and every single time that I get a little bit more vulnerable with my story and I share a little bit more detail about it, yeah. that's whenever I make the most impact. And that's whenever I hear from people and people will just tell me that that one little piece that maybe I added in only that time. And that was the first time I ever had said it. That was the piece that got them and drew them in. So it kind of lets you open up a little bit more and kind of showcase that. That's but good. You know, that I love the fact that you do something new every single year and you have inspired me to cook this year. And that is yes. my, <laughs> that is my new talent that I'm working on, but I want to know going. it. Um, it hasn't necessarily, I made some pasta the other night and that was great. <laughs> So wait, you made pasta or you boiled pasta? Well, I boiled the pasta, but I made the sauce that went with it. So that was good. I, I love you. I hope that people know about you. I know they know a lot about you and your platform and, and your story, but I hope people know how very funny you are. Well, you know, I get it from, I get it from my dad. It's not, it's not just a natural thing that's happened, but over time, whenever you grow up in a sarcastic household, yeah. you got to stay pretty quick with them. So what is your thing that you're doing this year? What's your new skill? Okay. So um, my new skill, I'm, I'm in a Christmas concert uh, in, in December at, and there's like 2000 people and I play the piano. I've played since I was little, but I decided this year to challenge myself and I'm playing this one song in five different instruments. And I only know, I only knew two of these instruments. Um, and so I had to learn three new instruments this year for this Christmas concert. Uh, electric, uh, the bass guitar, drums, and a guitar, which is a guitar that looks like a piano. And so uh, learn, playing five instruments all at once for the same song was my goal this year. Wow. Will we be able to see this somewhere? Where will this yes. be? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a video. No, okay. it's in Tulsa. It's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's a concert that Brian Nira puts on um, every year. And it's actually three days after uh, Miss America, but, um, but I'm really excited because it's just, you know, what it's like when you're working towards something and you're, and all your focus goes towards that. And that's, that has been my thing for the whole year to learn these instruments so I could play them all at once. Well, not, not all at once, but all for the same song. Right. Yeah. I love that. That'll be, I cannot wait to see it. I will be looking for that video. Okay. I'll send it to you. You, you okay. send me some pasta and I'll send you a video of that song. Sounds good. It's done. Consider it done. Okay. So we like to wrap up every podcast episode by you giving three tips for success or three tips to kind of step out of your yourself and kind of maybe put your pride aside to start accomplishing what you hope to or you've dreamed of. So what would be your three tips to success? Okay. Um, so first of all, the best thing, and you know this, is uh, – you can't do it alone. You surround yourself with people who will sharpen your skills. People who have gone before you and people who will encourage you now. Um, I think the other thing is to, you can never dream big enough. People, I think people sell themselves short. I mean, you dreamt when you were eight years old to, to be Miss Oklahoma. And a big, that's a big, big dream. But, but I mean, I'm talking to you now as Miss Oklahoma on her way to Miss America. And so when I write down dreams at the beginning of every year, if I look at them and think, do they seem accomplishable? Like I can accomplish them. If I feel like automatically I can, then I think they're not big enough. Like I really think the bigger you dream, 
then the, the more that you can accomplish. We just, we just don't dream uh, big enough. And then the other thing I think is just because something failed does not mean uh, that anything else you do will fail or that you are a failure. You have to go back to those are all just, it's all preparation. Those failures, actually, the more you fail, the more you learn. We learn way more from the things we fail at than we ever do from our mountaintop experiences. So I would encourage anybody that's listening to this, if you had 10 times of not succeeding, then you, you learn from those and tell your story because other people want, need to hear your story. Um, but do not give up. Keep learning from those uh, because if somebody has achieved great success, it is not because they haven't failed many times before that because those people who are on the top absolutely went through. That's why they're there because they have an amazing story to tell, but, but an amazing story of how they overcame the failures that they had. So those, those would be my three. You are incredible, Jill. Well, you know that you inspire me so, so much and you make such an impact on everybody that you meet. So I really appreciate you taking the time to spend with me today and talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I just love you and I am so incredibly proud of you and I cannot wait to watch you and you know I'm your biggest fan and cheerleader and I'm, I'm so proud of you for doing this podcast as well. updated on the latest episodes of Living Visible by following Addie on Instagram at Addison J. Price and on Twitter at Price underscore Addison. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a five-star review. It's a small act that goes a long way in supporting this podcast. 